Warning. The following program contains the testimony of real Christians experiencing trials and tribulations. It could change your life. Welcome to the Firefly Report, showing how God works in people's lives. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 22 of the Firefly Report. We feel this is the only place that you can find in-depth reporting with real Christian people with real-life stories discussing how God is working in their lives. We broadcast each and every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at thefireflyreport.com. And you can download all of our shows for free on iTunes. I want to thank everyone for joining us again tonight. I hope everyone had a wonderful new year. And we're all hoping and praying that 2015 will be the best year that we've all had together, worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ together each and every day. During the second half of last week's episode, we touched on the topic of apologetics for atheists and agnostics alike. And after finishing that episode, I came across an article that was written on December 23rd in Newsweek. Maybe some of you have heard about this article in the news due to its high controversial subject matter. But the article was titled, The Bible, So Misunderstood, It's a Sin. And it would be one thing if this was written by a Christian for other Christians as sort of a critique to help us grow in how we should live for God. But that's not what it was. It was a liberal smear piece to attack Christianity, to try to point out the hypocrisy of Christianity, and to try to poke holes in the Bible itself and point it out as a flawed document. And if you haven't read that article yet, I highly encourage you to go to Newsweek and read the article. You can read it online for free. And if you can't find it there, I'm sure there's plenty of other articles out there talking about it where you can link to it. But you need to read it. And not that you need to read it to learn anything good about Christianity, but you need to read it to learn about the passive-aggressive angst and anger directed towards Christianity today by individuals like the author of this article that try to smear us, point us into a corner, and diminish the very things that we believe in, to poke fun at the very things that we believe in. Because it's interesting, number one, that they picked to release this article on the 23rd of December, the day before Christmas Eve. But it's also interesting that you don't hear articles like this being written about in major magazines and major publications with regards to Islam or Buddhism or Scientology or any other religion. But for whatever reason, in the times in which we're living in today, Christianity is under attack. And there's a spirit of Antichrist that is growing rapidly throughout our country. And tonight I want to take an in-depth look at that spirit of Antichrist because I think it shows through in this article, the Bible, so misunderstood it's a sin. So with that being said, sit back, relax, 
and try to enjoy <laughs> the controversial episode 22, The Spirit of Antichrist. After last week's episode of discussing apologetics for atheist and agnostic people, I came across an article that was published on the 23rd of December in Newsweek magazine, and it kind of made all the points of what exactly I was talking about last week with regards to understanding the modern atheistic mindset when it comes to their beliefs against the Bible, against Christianity, and why they so adamantly oppose it. And the title of this article, you may have heard about it in the news, was titled, The Bible, So Misunderstood It's a Sin. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take the time to read that article. You can find it at www.newsweek.com. And I want you to scroll down to the bottom of that page, find that article, click on it and read it. It'll probably take you roughly 45 minutes of an hour to go through it and read it. If you can, and if you can stomach it, because it's a very difficult read, it's going to make your blood pressure go through the roof when you hear some of the things that are stated in that article. But it gives you a good idea of just what we're up against as Christians today with this modern antichrist attitude, fever pitch that's just going across the country right now. And it's full of passive aggressive rage that just, it, it boggles the mind at what some of these individuals are saying now that are so adamantly opposed to Christianity. And this article is a, a glaring example of that. And wouldn't you know that Newsweek would publish this article on the 23rd of December. They've got 365 days they could run this, but they're going to put it up the day before Christmas Eve just as a way to kind of thumb their noses and fingers at Christians getting ready to celebrate Jesus' birth two weeks ago. So, if you get a chance, please, I want you to go to the site, read this article, so you can have an understanding of what exactly it is that I'm talking about when it comes to this attitude against Christianity today. But tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through this article and I'm going to point out the premises of each section of this article. And then I'm going to point out my own retort to what exactly I feel this author is missing when he's trying so adamantly to oppose the very merits of our belief systems as Christians. So I have the article in front of me and I'm going to start out by just reading exactly how the article opens and I'm going to go through each section and point out what I feel is the premise of what the author is trying to state in each section. They wave their Bibles at passers-by, screaming their condemnations of homosexuals. They fall on their knees, worshiping at the base of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments while demanding prayer in school. They appeal to God to save America from their political opponents, mostly Democrats. They gather in football stadiums by the thousands to pray for the country's salvation. They are God's frauds, cafeteria Christians who pick and choose which Bible verses they will heed with less care than they exercise in selecting side orders for lunch. They are joined by religious rationalizers, fundamentalists who, unable to find scripture supporting their biases and beliefs, twist phrases and modify translations to prove they are honoring the Bible's words. I'm sure as you just heard those opening two paragraphs, that your blood pressure is already probably beginning to boil. And as I stated, hang in there with me as we go through this tonight, because that's just the beginning of some shocking and profound statements 
trying to poke holes in your beliefs and my beliefs and all the beliefs of individuals who trust in the Word of God, who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who believe Jesus is God. And it's important that, as difficult as it may be, don't tune out as we continue to go through this just because you're angry. I want you to hear these words. I want you to understand to your very core exactly what the mindset of the enemy is and what their belief systems are. If we scroll down another paragraph or two, there are some actual truthful points of this article. And they're found in two research studies that were done. And this kind of also ties into what I was talking about last week. The first statement says, a Pew Research poll in 2010 found that evangelicals ranked only a smidgen higher than atheists in familiarity with the New Testament and Jesus' teachings. The Barna Group, a Christian polling firm, found in 2012 that evangelicals accepted the attitudes and beliefs of the Pharisees, religious leaders depicted through the New Testament as opposing Christ and his message, more than they accepted the teachings of Jesus. When we hear those two studies there and the statistics that they show us, it just solidifies the point that as Christians, we need to get into the Word of God. We need to know what we're talking about. We need to understand the scriptures. And when faced with people who are going to try to poke holes in those scriptures, we need to be well grounded in the Word. We need to have that solid relationship with Jesus Christ so we can have a response. We can't simply get mad at them or follow emotional arguments that have no basis in fact in order to argue against their valid points. So as we go through this, it's just it's important to know that the purpose of all of this tonight is to help encourage you to get into the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to grow in your walk with the Lord, so that when you're confronted with these individuals as we move forward, and you're going to be confronted because the number of these individuals is growing each and every day, that you need to be grounded in the truth and you need to be learning as much as you possibly can about the faith that you support. As we move on through the article, we get to the purpose that they're stating for the article. And I want you to note how the author states it is not to debate the existence of God and what they're going to state the purpose of this article is all about. But I want you to notice what exactly is covered as we go deeper into this article. Newsweek's exploration here of the Bible's history and meaning is not intended to advance a particular theology or debate the existence of God. Rather, it is designed to shine a light on a book that has been abused by people who claim to revere it but don't read it, in the process of creating misery for others. When the illiteracy of self-proclaimed biblical literalist leads parents to banish children from their homes, when it sets neighbor against neighbor, when it engenders hate, and condemnation when it impedes science and undermines intellectual advancement. The topic has become too important for Americans to ignore, whether they are deeply devout or tepidly faithful, believers or atheists. And that's just the excerpts from the opening few paragraphs explaining why this article was supposedly written by Newsweek. And the article is broken up, if you haven't read it yet, it's broken up into a couple different subheadings, and I'm going to go through each subheading and basically state what I think the premise of that subheading is before summarizing what this article was all about. The first subheading was playing telephone with the Word of God. The basic premise I feel of this section of this article was that you cannot trust what you read because the Bible is full of errors. And as we go through and read some excerpts from this particular subheading, 
The first excerpt we're going to read is taking aim at the particular story told in the Gospel of John. And it starts in John 7, verse 53, where Jesus was accosted by a group of Pharisees who brought to him a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And we all know the story that Jesus bent down when he was receiving the accusation, started drawing in the sand, and told the Pharisees, he who was without sin cast the first stone. The author, under this particular subheading, states that this claim was simply made up, that that never happened, that actually John didn't even write that particular episode, that scribes made it up sometime, and I'm quoting now, scribes made it up sometime in the Middle Ages. It does not appear in any of the three other Gospels or in any of the early Greek versions of John. Even if the Gospel of John is an infallible telling of the history of Jesus' ministry, the event simply never happened. And if you've already read this article or you go to read this article, you'll see that through this subheading, the author goes through other instances in which things are supposedly made up or added to or altered in order to accommodate the scribes who were writing or recording this particular scriptures at that time. The second subheading we're going to go to uh, is translation, transubstantiation. And the premise of this subheading, I felt, was the term worship has two meanings and is misunderstood. Therefore, the fundamental premise of the Bible that Jesus is God can be called to question. And I felt the author was trying to make this premise due to a specific section of the subheading where he was attacking the definition of a Greek word that was used in order to define the word worship but it also, that Greek word can be used to define to prostrate oneself. And I'll quote from the article now. A Greek word used about 60 times in the New Testament equates to something along the lines of to prostrate oneself as well as to praise God. That was translated into Latin as adoro, which in the King James Bible became worship. But those two words don't mean precisely the same thing. When the King James Bible was written, worship could be used to describe both exhibiting reverence for God and prostrating oneself. While not perfect, it's a decent translation. As a result, throughout the King James Bible, people worship many things. A slave worships his owner. The assembled of Satan worship an angel. And Roman soldiers mocking Jesus worshiped him. In each of these instances, the word does not mean praise God's glory or anything like that. Instead, it means to bow or prostrate oneself. And if you notice what's happening here in this section is we have the author defining terms and pointing out some potential issues with those terms and saying, well, if the Bible says this particular Greek word that was translated as worship in this instance, but it really meant to prostrate oneself in this instance, then when it was translated as to worship, it was being misallocated to that understanding. And you see what that does is that starts to sow the seeds of doubt. So as you go through the scriptures and you encounter that particular word worship in that particular verse throughout the scripture, it sows the seeds of doubt of whether that scripture really means what it says. So in a sense, it makes you feel like you can't trust what you're reading. And, you, and as you'll see as we go through this article, that this is the type of arguments that are continuously put forth to make one want to doubt what they're reading in the Bible. So now moving forward, we come to the subheading, The Sociopath Emperor. And I feel the premise of this subheading was to show that the Christian day of worship, our holiday calendar, and biblical canon were established by a pagan Roman emperor. And the Trinity 
is anti-biblical and false. And what this subheading does, or what this section actually does, is it points out to how a lot of Christian holidays, such as Christmas, are founded off the Gregorian Roman calendar, were all initiated by the Emperor Constantine. And for those of you unfamiliar with Christian history, this article goes into the origins of Christianity and the Roman Empire's influence on the spread of Christianity. They went from persecuting Christians to embracing Christianity, but what they did is they mingled some of their pagan faith and beliefs with Christianity, and that's kind of, to a certain extent, where the Roman Catholic Church originated from. But again, what this author is doing in this article is he's like spraying a shotgun on a wall, lumping all Christians, all Christianity, into certain sects and time periods that contributed to the spread and growth of Christianity. But what he didn't explain in this section was that while the Roman Empire was responsible for the growth of some forms of Christianity, they weren't responsible for the growth of all Christianity because we do know that during the Great Inquisition, but there were thousands of Christians that were murdered under the popes. And it's important to point out that you can't paint with a broad brush when talking about Christianity. But yet, that's continually what happens in today's modern society with arguments like this particular article. They want to group all of us into one giant bubble. You can't do that because faith is defined individually. Only us individually can determine what our faith actually is. It's not defined by what our enemies think it is. It's not defined by history, what history says Christianity is. It's defined by us indivi individually and our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'll get into that a little bit later as I summarize my arguments against this particular article. Now we're going to move on to the next subheading, which is called No Three Kings with a question mark. And I feel the premise of this subheading was to state that Jesus's miraculous birth could be called into question along with the resurrection accounts. And can we really believe those accounts in the Bible? And I'll start out by reading an excerpt. Jesus was born in a house in Bethlehem. His father Joseph had been planning to divorce Mary until he dreamed that she'd conceive a child through the Holy Spirit. No wise men showed up for the birth, and no brilliant star shone overhead. Joseph and his family then fled to Egypt, where they remained for many years. Later, they returned to Israel, hoping to live in Judea. But that proved problematic. So they settled in a small town called Nazareth. Not the version you're familiar with. No angel appearing to Mary. Not born in a manger. No one saying there was no room at the inn. No gold, frankincense, or myrrh. Fleeing to Egypt. First living in Nazareth when Jesus was a child, not before he was born. You may not recognize this version, but it is a story of Jesus' birth found in the Gospels. Two Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Tell the story of when Jesus was born, but in quite different ways. Contradictions abound. In creating the familiar Christmas tale, Christians took a little bit of one story, mixed it with a little bit of another, and ignored all of the contradictions in the two. The version recounted above does the same. It uses parts of those stories from the two Gospels that are usually ignored. So there are two blended versions and two Gospel versions. Take your pick. After pointing out potential flaws in the next two paragraphs, the author goes on to state that the stories in the four Gospels of Jesus' death and resurrection differ as well. So you can see that he's painting the argument there that there's contradictions 
and the various Gospels with regards to the account of Jesus' birth and the accounts of the resurrection. But you see, folks, just because there's varying degrees of detail in the accounts doesn't mean that you can disregard the accounts. That would be like saying, say a plane was to crash tomorrow in New York City. You would have multiple newspapers report on and write articles with regards to what took place during that crash. You wouldn't get the same exact article from both newspapers. You would get varying accounts. And the same would be true with regards to the historical account gospels of Jesus Christ. They were different men. They were from different walks of life. They're not going they're not robots. They were not going to describe the events that they witnessed of Jesus' life the same way. For the author to make the argument that because the accounts varied, they're therefore historically inaccurate is just absurd and preposterous. But we'll continue as we go through the article. The next subheading of the article is God Wrestling Dragons. And as condescending as that sounds, believe it or not, that is the subheading. And the premise I feel behind this subheading and this section of the article is creationism is a myth due to varying accounts in Genesis, Isaiah, Psalms, and Job. Books which are referred to as of monsters and magic. And in reading through that subsection, the author tries to make a point of how Genesis offers varying accounts of the creation experience and how the books of Job, Isaiah, and Psalms have a different creation account as that compared to that which we find in the book of Genesis. And it just has the undertones of trying to point out the creation story as being a joke and unbelievable in a scientific context. The next subheading of the article is entitled, Sarah Palin is Sinning Right Now. And it's at this point where even in that subheading you can start to see the bias of this particular argument and where the point and the goals of this author are really focused and moving towards. And I feel that the premise of this section is that modern Christian women are hypocrites and should follow the sexist teachings of the Bible. The author says these women are sinning. He equates homosexuality as like any other sin, and we cannot be sure that it is really condemned except in Romans, but more time in the book of Romans is spent judging people who criticize the government. While I consider the majority of this article to be liberally slanted hogwash, it's in this section of this article that the author seems to really go over the deep end with the argument that the concepts covered in the book of Timothy, which the article states could potentially be a forgery, point to the idea that Christian women are to do nothing in life at all except serve men and that they're not allowed to have a career, they're not allowed to have a point of view, and therefore they just need to get to the back of the bus, shut up, sit down, and, and do nothing. And those of us who've actually read the Bible know that this is completely taken out of context. And while there are some rules and regulations in Timothy with regards to the church, we know that the Bible is not an anti-woman document. First Timothy is not an anti-woman document, as this author purports it to be. But we do acknowledge that when God created man and woman, that there was a purpose and a hierarchy in that creation. And while that doesn't fit the liberal agenda, it's what God stated and created. But we can also see in this subsection of the article 
that the author is truly trying to persuade Christians toward a greater acceptance of homosexuality. And this is evidence in the excerpt that I'm getting ready to read. Many Christians point to other parts of the New Testament when denouncing homosexuality. Romans, another letter attributed to Paul, is a popular choice. In the King James Bible, it condemns men who lust in their hearts for each other, a translation that holds up pretty well when compared to the earliest Greek versions. And scholars agree that Romans is a real letter written by Paul. In other words, Romans is real gospel, and what it has to say can't be questioned by those who call themselves biblical literalists. Which means televangelist Pat Robertson should prepare himself for an eternity in hell. On his television show, The 700 Club, Robertson recently went on a tirade about Barack Obama and, as he is wont to do, prayed for help. God, we need the angels. We need your help, Robertson said. We need to do something to pray to be delivered from this president. And with that, Pat Robertson sinned, because in Romans, so often used to condemn homosexuality, there is a much longer series of verses about how the righteous are supposed to behave toward people in government authority. It shows up in Romans 13, 1-2, which in the International Standard Bible says, The existing authorities have been established by God, so that whoever resists the authorities opposes what God has established, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So yes, there is one verse in Romans about homosexuality, and there are eight verses condemning those who criticize the government. In other words, all fundamentalist Christians who decry Obama have sinned as much as they believe gay people have. And here, 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 we have the true motivation behind this entire argument. Christians don't care for Obama and his policies. Christians don't support the homosexual agenda. So therefore, we are all sinners. And we are all sinners and need to look in the mirror because we're all sinners. And we just need to back off being critical of this president and of the homosexual agenda. There you go, folks. It's in plain black and white letters in this article. As you read, you'll feel this build to a crescendo till the author just could not take it anymore. He had to just come out and say it. And he did. And realists know that this is a total and complete fabrication and misinterpretation as to what this scripture from Romans was truly talking about. I doubt that if tomorrow, that if this administration said that becoming a Christian was illegal and reading the Bible was illegal and possessing the Bible was illegal that God would want us to listen to those decrees and adhere to those decrees in fact we know because we can read that the book of Revelation states a time and a place is gonna come one day when the Antichrist is gonna rise and he's gonna have a mark and those who don't take the mark of the beast and worship the mark of the beast and the image of the beast will be killed by the beast. And we also know by reading the rest of the book of Revelation that those people who don't take the mark of the beast are rewarded in heaven and given a crown. It doesn't say that they're punished as sinners. But as is usually the case when someone with a liberal agenda wants to poke holes in our scripture, they only take a portion of it. They don't read the whole Bible. They have their liberal talking points. And they read the few verses that they've been given that attempt, usually in a sad attempt, to poke holes in the doctrine that we believe in. And like the long line before him, this author fails once again 
to understand the context of the entire Bible and wants to misinterpret in order to fit his agenda of liberal policies and liberal worldviews. But he continues in this subsection. Of course, there are plenty of fundamentalist Christians who have no idea where references to homosexuality are in the New Testament, much less what the surrounding verses say. And so they always fall back on Leviticus, the Old Testament book loaded with do's and don'ts. They seem to have the words memorized about it being an abomination for a man to lie with a man as he does with a woman. And every time they make that argument, they demonstrate that they know next to nothing about the New Testament. So here the author is trying to state that if we quote the Old Testament and say that homosexuality is an abomination to God, we must understand based on his thesis that we really can't be sure that the abomination that he was talking about in the book of Leviticus was really homosexuality. And then when we look at it in the New Testament, as he tries to point out through his arguments, that homosexuality, if it is a sin, is just on par with any other sin, and we need not focus on that as Christians with regards to our lifestyles. And when I hear something like this, I immediately think of moral relativism. The idea that everything's relative, everything, what is right and is wrong. We don't need to look at scripture to determine what's right and wrong. We don't need to look to God to determine what's right and wrong. What's right and wrong is a determination of what we feel within ourselves. And see, that is the mindset that permeates the liberal agenda. That is the mindset that permeates their governing philosophy. But you oppose that mindset, and then the personal attacks begin. And if you've read this article yet, or you're going through it with me, you can see that the arguments that he proposes are very passive-aggressive. It's not like he's being nice about his presentation with the things he disagrees with in the Bible. He's poking fun. He's being passive-aggressive. He's offering snarky comments with regards to the very scripture themselves. He's questioning the deity of Christ. There's numerous things, sacrilegious things, that are being done to try to judge Christians on a book that he doesn't understand but he's read some other people that have disagreed with the things that he disagrees with so he's quoting them to help support his arguments but it's obvious that he hasn't read the entire Bible himself but I'll continue as we go through the next subheading is they haven't a prayer and basically the premise of this subheading is in this section of the article is praying in public is a sin and hurts society no prayer in school is a good thing and I'll read a couple excerpts from where I feel that that's the premise of this section. Recently, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal announced that he would be holding his massive prayer rally at a sports arena in Baton Rouge. More than 100,000 evangelical pastors have been invited. Jesus would have been horrified. At least, that's what the Bible says. And after that, he then goes in to decry how the Bible states that we're supposed to pray in private and how public prayer is really a sin because praying in public is just trying to show others how wonderful we are as Christians and therefore God views that as a sin based on the scripture. Again, completely misrepresenting the context of, of the Bible, but I digress. He goes on to say, because God knows what someone needs without being asked, there is no reason for long convoluted prayers. Therefore, Jesus says in both Matthew and Luke, People who wish to pray should only say the Lord's Prayer. Of course, there is a problem that the Lord's Prayer cited in those two Gospels comes in two versions. So Christians have to choose one or the other. 
So basically, as he's lecturing on us on how to pray in public, he's saying that we need to be careful because based on his idea and theory that the Gospels are multiple versions and multiple accounts, the prayer sounds differently in the two accounts that are held. So therefore, we need to pick and choose which one we're going to do because, you know, he's the moral authority to judge us on how we should pray. He continues a few more paragraphs solidifying that point or attempting to solidify that point before the saddest portion of this particular section, which reads, which leads to an obvious question. Why don't more Christians oppose prayer in school? If these people truly believe that the Bible is the word of God, then their children should be taught the Lord's Prayer, brought to their rooms, and allowed to pray alone. That answer doesn't lend itself to big protests or angry calls for impeaching judges, but it does follow the instructions from the Gospels. And isn't that supposed to be the point? How anyone could possibly think that removing prayer from schools would be a good thing has always boggled my mind. But I'll touch my point with regards to that at the end of this episode. The final subheading of this article is called Judge Not. And I feel that the premise of Judge Not is change your belief system regarding the Bible and listen to modern experts, modern biblical experts. The author states, The Bible is a very human book. It is written, assembled, copied, and translated by people. That explains the flaws, the contradictions, and the theological disagreements on its pages. Once that is understood, it is possible to find out which parts of the Bible were not in the earliest Greek manuscripts, which are the bad translations, and what one book says in comparison to another, and then try to discern the message for yourself. And embrace what modern Bible experts know to be the true sections of the New Testament. Jesus said, don't judge. He condemned those who pointed out the faults of others while ignoring their own. And he proclaimed, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. That's a good place to start. So basically in this section he's summarizing all the reasons that you should question the Bible and its accuracy and its statements. You should stop viewing the liberal agenda, the homosexual agenda, as being anti-biblical. And you should accept the tenet of God is love. You shouldn't pray in public because that's a sin according to him. You should pray in private. You shouldn't pray about what you want to pray for. You shouldn't pray for America or anything else. You should simply restate the Lord's Prayer. What a disgusting, insulting piece of filth this article is. But now I want to go through the main points that I felt this author was trying to make and then offer what I feel the Christian biblical response is for those arguments. The first argument through the first few subheadings of this article was that the Bible is full of errors. Well, if we turn to our Bibles, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it reads, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm not denying, nor are biblical scholars denying, that through many years of having to hand translate and transcribe the books of the Bible, that errors here and there did not occur. But to try to make the argument that the gravity of those errors lead to foundational flaws and the very principles that constitute our belief system as Christians is more than a stretch. 
The second main point of this author was trying to make the argument that Jesus was a separate person from God and that the Trinity was a fabrication made up by scribes over the years. And all we have to do to refute that is to turn to John 14, verses 6 through 7. And that reads, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. The next main point of this article was that Jesus' birth, death, God in human flesh, and creationism should all be doubted. And you see, I feel that these arguments were designed to ridicule and shame and plant seeds of doubt. If you understand who Jesus is, if you personally know Jesus and who he is, the details of these other things are irrelevant. You see, so what if creationism isn't exactly what we thought it is? Because the truth about creationism isn't the determining factor if we'll go to heaven or hell. That determining factor is if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is God incarnate in human flesh, and that his sacrifice was sufficient to save us from our sin, if we're willing to believe in him, repent of our sin, turn to him, and believe in him. But you see, that was the one point that wasn't discussed in this article, salvation. Because you see, atheists and liberals who want to attack our religion don't grasp the concept of faith. See, faith isn't measurable in the scientific method. The spirit isn't measurable in the scientific method. But they try to treat it like it is. And that's why Jesus said, if we had the faith of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. In other words, that which seems impossible before us, those obstacles that seem impossible to overcome, impossible to survive, with faith in Jesus, we can do it. And how sad is it to know that there's millions, if not billions, of people in the world who place their faith in man. Psalms 118 verse 8 states, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. The problem with this article is that the ultimate premise is faith in man supersedes anything that God says in his holy word. What man can see, what man can touch, are the only things that are real. And anything that would equate to faith or spirit is simply a fantasy. Folks, that is the definition of Antichrist. What you're hearing in this article is a representation of the spirit of Antichrist. The replacement of, the rejection of, in the place of. That's what anti means. Against, in the place of, replacement, false. And that spirit is alive and well today. And if you don't believe that, I think you will after reading this article. The last point of this article was that removing prayer from schools or hiding prayer in schools is somehow advantageous to society. Well, I would like to ask the author a question. Does the author like school shootings? Does he like teenage pregnancy? Does he like a rise in violent crime and crimes in general? Because if he actually cared about the facts and not his own agenda, and not the government's agenda, then he'd be able to go back to the 1960s when prayer was removed from schools, and we can track the rise in statistics since that point in time. And guess what? 
There's been a rise in school shootings. There's been a rise in teenage pregnancies. And there's been a rise in crime. But at least those people who have grown up in those generations weren't traumatized by being indoctrinated by those awful Christian tenets of faith, right? How dare Christians restrict the lives of other people, making them feel guilty for their sins? Why, that's almost unthinkable. Why, we'd rather have our children high on antidepressants, taking drugs, having sex outside of marriage, having a homosexual lifestyle, shooting each other, killing each other, playing violent video games. You see, when God was taken out, Satan took his place. But whose choice was that? Was it your choice? Was it my choice? Who allowed it to happen? Who continues to allow it to happen? I believe we're living in the last days. I don't know how much time we have left. But I do know that when certain signs start to show up, that we're getting close. We've made it to the year 2015. In the last few years, signs have started to show up. There's a spirit of Antichrist in America like I've never witnessed nor read about, not only in my lifetime, but in the history of America. And the question that each of us has, individually, is what are we going to do about it? Are we going to get it in the Word? Are we going to get on our knees? Are we going to preach the Word? Are we going to witness to those people that need to hear the truth? Are we going to change who we are individually, fundamentally? Are we going to repent and turn back to God? Or are we going to allow individuals like the author of this article to ridicule us, to humiliate us, while we just simply cower and hide our heads in shame, walk away, and let evil win? I don't hate this individual. In fact, I think we should all pray for this individual who wrote this article. Isn't it interesting that in the article he stated that the story of Jesus drawing in the sand, telling the Pharisees that he was without sin to cast the first stone. Isn't it interesting that he said that passage was made up that wasn't true? Isn't it ironic that he's busy casting stones at all Christians in this article? Maybe that's why he believes that other one wasn't true. But you see, we're accountable for what we say, for what we do. And despite all our differences, I don't hate this individual. In fact, I thank him for making my point for me. The points that I was trying to make to you guys last week, in last week's episode, he made for me in writing this article. And now you don't have to take my word for it. You can read it, experience it, see it for yourself. But folks, this is the future. This is the future of our country. And the time for us to stand up for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is now. So pray for this individual tonight and pray for the millions like him that hate us, that the light of Christ might somehow break through their shielded minds and hearts, and that another anti-Christ, anti-Christian, can return to Jesus, just like the story of C.S. Lewis that we discussed last week. Keep praying, because time's running out. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope this episode was an eye-opening experience for you. I hope this episode showed you the vitriol and anger that is held by people of journalistic esteem today. 
and how, for some reason, they're allowed to openly disparage and attack Christianity in such a blasphemous way, wide open for everyone to see in today's modern culture. I would think that an article like this couldn't have even been published 20, 30 years ago. But the fact that it is being published, and it is being published today, and not only is it being published today, but it's being published, or was published rather, on the 23rd of December, speaks volumes to where we are as a society in America today, religiously speaking, politically speaking, and in many other ways. But what I found extremely alarming also, and you can find this out too, if you've had a chance to read the article online at www.newsweek.com, if you scroll down to the very bottom of the page after you've read the article, there's a comment section, like on all modern online website publications today. Read the comments. I encourage you to do that. You will be amazed and floored at the amount of people that agree with what this man's writing. Now, I don't know if that's simply because the atheists came out of the woodwork when they heard the article was published and they just wanted to give their support, so the majority of them came out to post their opinions about it, or whether that's kind of the barometer of where we are spiritually as a nation right now. But go there and read the comments. You will be amazed at the comments that people are making. People attacking Jesus Christ. People attacking Christians. People attacking the church. People attacking the idea that anyone could possibly believe in something like the Bible today in this modern era. And it's scary to know that we're surrounded by these individuals today. The days of this country, being a predominantly Christian nation, are changing right before our very eyes. And it's up to us to make every effort to try to change that as Christians. But that reality is there. That reality is existent. And I'm giving you the evidence tonight for you to see it for yourself. So take what you've learned tonight. And may it inspire you in the year 2015 to get into the Bible, to learn the Word, to have the weapon of the power of the Word of God in your minds and in your hearts. That way, when questioned in the future with regards to the validity of the Bible, to the inerrancy of the Bible, to the fact that it's the true Word of God, breathe through man so you can cause other people to turn from their sin, so you can plant the seed in them that the Holy Spirit can do the rest. But none of that's possible if we don't equip ourselves with the knowledge found in our Holy Bible and through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening tonight. Good night. And God bless. If you would like more information on how you can share your testimony on The Firefly Report, visit www.thefireflyreport.com and click on the link entitled Share My Testimony. We would love to hear from you and talk with you about how God's working in your life.